Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Wanda, would you would you pull up the words there the, through the through the storms? Just that one little we sang it right there a second ago. To that song. Man, what a what a incredible thing to sing and to say and an incredibly difficult thing to live. He's Lord of the storm as long as things are good, right? And then when the storm hits, sometimes we don't often make him Lord. What what a what a great challenge for us as we kind of jump into this sermon this morning together. Let me pray for us and we're gonna begin. Father, you are the Lord of the storm. And you're Lord in the storm. Whether we understand it or not, Father, whether, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we live it or not, it's true. And so, Lord, I, I know in a church this size that there are lots of storms that people are walking through. And I know there are a lot of trials that people struggle with every day. Some of them we're aware of and some of them we're not, Lord, but you know them all. And so I just pray right now, Lord, that even in the midst of the storm, we would allow you to be Lord. We would cling to you even more in the very difficult moments. And and Father, as we kind of tackle this idea this morning of evil and suffering, open up the eyes of our hearts to see truth, Father. Allow us to understand your word. Allow us to understand what you've said to us and how it should apply to our lives. Lord, allow me to speak clearly. And Lord, not to say anything I want to say, but to say everything you want to say. And I pray that impact lives this morning, Father. I pray you would give us the ability to hear from you. Offer us comfort and peace and hope in the midst of difficult times. And Father, we pray as we do every Sunday that as we better understand your word and better understand your calling in our lives that we will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So earlier this week I received news from an old friend, a a girl that I went to church with and had not talked to probably in, I don't know, 20, 25 years. We're friends on Facebook, but had not had a conversation. I got word this week that her her 14-year-old son, Jacob, died of cancer. Of course, I reached out and made a phone call and, and understood the story a little bit more. Apparently he had cancer in his leg a couple of years ago and had battled it and fought back and actually had been, had been declared cancer free. He got to ring the bell and go home and then celebrate and the family was ecstatic and praising the Lord and about a week and a half ago apparently he got very sick. They didn't know why. Uh, very unresponsive. They airlifted him to Atlanta. Turns out he had a very aggressive form of leukemia. Two days later he was dead. And so we ask, in the midst of that tragedy and suffering, why? Lord, 
Why did you let that kid suffer? We, we could ask the same question over and over in our own lives. Couldn't we have events that we're aware of and, and, and people that we deal with? Why would you allow such incredible suffering for that family, Lord? So the, the question that, that follows is, why not just heal him? Or why not just allow him never to be sick? Or, or in the life of the person that seems to struggle year after year, why did you even let that person be born, Lord? I mean, why did you make them go through the struggles of life? Why would such a good and loving God allow evil things to happen? You know, we've been struggling through these tough questions over the last several weeks. We've talked about the resurrection. Is it real? Did it really happen? We talked about the scripture. Are the scriptures real? Can we trust them? Can we base our lives on them? We talked about Christ last week and his claims of being Messiah. Was he truly God? But of all the questions that we've struggled through, of all the difficult questions we've looked at over the last few weeks, the question of suffering and pain and evil may be the most difficult question that we examine. Why would a loving God allow such suffering? Far too many people have walked away from their faith because of that very question. One scholar said it like this. He said, the problem of evil is certainly the greatest obstacle to belief in the existence of God. And so the argument goes something like this. I've got it on the screen because I want you to kind of understand how the skeptic would phrase this. Put that first question up on the screen if you would, please. Maybe I didn't give it to you. Is God, if God is willing to prevent, do we have that one? There it is. I'm sorry. It's not a question, you're right. Put the first two statements up. <laughs> the first statement goes like this. And I was in, the, I was in this good, I was in a good place. We were kind of, you know, here we go. All right. If God is willing to prevent evil but cannot, then he's weak. Right? That's what the skeptic would say. If God can prevent it, if he wants to prevent it but can't do it, then he's weak. If he's able to prevent it but he's not willing, then he's cruel. So either way, we've got a problem, don't we? And how could a loving God kind of fit into this category? And some people would say, well, because of this very argument, either God doesn't exist or he's not who we think he is. But how could a loving God allow these things to happen? What do we do with the question of evil? And so in order to kind of answer that question, and I need to preface everything I'm going to say with what I've said the last three weeks, we're kind of taking a big picture view of this. Okay, kind of 30,000 feet. If you're looking for details, we can talk about that later. I can recommend some things you can read. But I'm going to give you kind of a, a big picture of where we're going and how to answer this question. And in order to do it, I want to turn our attention to the Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Job. If you can't find Job, find the book of Psalms and take a left. It's right there before it, okay? I've always thought it was interesting that the Lord gives us the book of Job, which is a, a book of suffering and of pain and of difficulties. We know the story of Job. And then he follows it up with the book of Psalm, a psalm of praise and remembering the power of the Lord and his dedication. Those kind of give us the extremes of life oftentimes. But Job is a great book because it speaks to this idea of suffering. 
It speaks to this idea of pain. It speaks to this idea of bad things happening to good people. Job was written probably 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. It was written before the book of Genesis was actually written. So the events don't predate Genesis, but the book itself predates Genesis. And so we would say that Job is the oldest book in the Bible and really one of the oldest books in the world. And so we're going to just kind of give you some high points again. There's a lot of stuff in the book of Job, and I don't have anywhere close to the amount of time this morning to go into all of it, but I'm going to give you just some high points and help you understand the premise and what the Lord's trying to teach us in the book of Job. So let's begin in Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. Now that's awfully important for our understanding, right? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Job was a good man. He was blameless. He was upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, the next few verses talk about all he had. They give kind of a, an inventory of his wealth, of his riches, of all he'd been given. Now skip down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Now just for a second, I'm reminded of the passage of Scripture that tells us that the enemy is like a roaring lion looking, or he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. God says to the enemy, what have you been doing? Well, I've just been walking around the earth. <laughs> Looking around, seeing who I can find, walking up and down. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, here's what Satan says. Listen, the only reason Job follows you, Lord, is because you've been good to him. You've blessed him. You've given him nice stuff. You've provided for him. And he follows you. But take that away, Lord, and he won't follow you anymore. He'll curse you. Which I just wonder how many of us kind of fall into that category. As long as things are going good for us, we're praising and trusting the Lord. As soon as things go bad, we curse God. Look at verse 11. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, if we were to read verses 13 through 17, Job loses all of his possessions, everything. If we read verses 18 and 19, his children are killed. Job chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, his body is stricken with these sores. And we see all of a sudden we're confronted with this question, how does God take this blameless man, this man who's done no wrong, he's a good man in the sight of the Lord, how is it that God could allow such evil to fall upon this man? So in order to understand that, I want to ask kind of a series of questions. Here's the first question. I have it on the screen. It's important to foundationally understand where we're going. The first question is this. Did God create evil? 
Right? Where does this come from? How does it happen? We ask this question oftentimes in our lives. We see bad things happen. Where does evil come from? And the, the idea, the argument goes something like this. Listen, God created everything. He therefore must have created evil. Why would a good God create evil? Or the skeptic would say, a good God can't create evil. Therefore, he either doesn't exist or he's not really a good God. Now, I want to remind you of a little bit of history first before I answer this question. I want to remind you of the creation. Now, you don't have to flip back, but I want to just jog your memory a little bit by reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, right? The whole first chapter of the book of Genesis, God has created everything. The Bible tells us that he had created everything. And behold, he says in Genesis 1, 31, he looked at it and said, it was very good, so God's original plan was this idea of perfection. Everything was good. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no disease. Then Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food. Remember the Lord had commanded her not to eat of this certain tree. When she saw the food on the tree, saw that it was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So just kind of follow this with me now. Adam and Eve Adam and Eve are given a choice. They choose not to follow the Lord. Very clearly, they're given a choice. They choose not to follow the Lord. Now, when they chose not to follow the Lord, when they sinned, sin and death and de- disease and destruction entered the world. All right, so before this, things were good. After this, the Bible says that all of creation was corrupted because of this sin. And so we need to understand something first before we go too much farther. Sin is the cause of suffering, not God. God's original plan was that everything was good and without sin. It's the sin in our lives. It's the sin in this world that lead to cancer, to murder, to adultery, to destruction, to all the evil and the problems we have. All that comes from sin. But here's the question we ask. Okay, if God created everything, though, that had to include evil. Right? God created it. It must be part of what we are. Evil must have been included in God's creation. Why did he create it? Well, let's define evil just for a second. I want to make sure we're clear on this. We would say that God created things, right? He created the earth and he created the stars and the trees and people. And we've read Genesis 1 and 2 and we know that God created all things. We would say, as we try to understand evil, evil is not a thing, So evil is what's left when good is not present. Now let me define this for you. Evil is a lack or being deprived of a good thing that God made. Right? I think I have it on the screen. Evil is not a created thing. Evil is the absence of good. So a way that you could kind of think about this and better understand this is when you turn off all the lights, there's darkness. Like darkness is the absence of light. The Bible says that the earth was dark and formless, right? And he had to create light. We would say that when you remove God, when you remove goodness, kind of like dark remains when you remove light, when you remove God and goodness, evil remains. So one writer said it like this, evil is not a substance, but a corruption of the good substances God made. 
Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a lack in good things, but it's not a thing itself. Evil is like a wound in the arm or moth holes in a garment. It exists only in another, but not in itself. We did a garden again this year out back. And we have, uh, in, in kind of the back part of our property, we have some deer that live back there. And, and we enjoy watching them most of the time until we put up the garden. And they like the little things that come up out of the ground, right? And if you've ever done a garden and you've worked really hard to till it up and to fertilize it and to water it. And after several weeks, a couple little things pop up out of the ground. The last thing you want is for a deer to come along and eat it. And so we decided to put up a fence. We've done that the last couple of years. And so I, I put up a tall, probably about a, it's probably seven or eight feet tall. In order to put up a fence, I have to put up posts. In order to put up posts, I have to dig a hole. Now, this is going to sound pretty simplistic, but in order to dig a hole, I have to do what? I, I have to work. I have to remove the dirt. i got to work to actually do something, right? So a hole is really what? The absence of dirt. A hole can't exist in the ground without the dirt. Right, so we would say, if I'm going to dig a hole, the way I'm going to dig a hole is to remove the dirt from the ground and I produce a hole. Kind of like that with evil. When we remove God, what's left is evil. You can't have evil without, first of all, removing the substance that is already there. Augustine, who's a 13th century, excuse me, a 3rd century theologian, said this, Evil has no positive nature, but the loss of good has received the name evil. So just to be clear, I'm just, just setting a premise here and understanding where we're going. Evil was not a created thing. It's what exists when we remove God. Now the next question comes, okay, fair enough, so if evil exists when we remove God, second question, we have it on the screen, why then does God even allow evil? Right, if he didn't create it, it's just when you remove God, you have things that are anti-God, which is evil. If that's the case, fair enough, but why doesn't he just do away with all of it? Why can't he just kind of wave his hands or speak in some way and make evil go away? Because here's what we see scripturally, look at verse 8 of Job chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now down to verse 12. I want you to notice what the Lord says here. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now God, in this instance, in Job chapter 1, obviously and clearly allows this evil in the life of Job. God gives his blessing, so to speak. Listen, if you want to do this, do it, Satan. If you want to allow these bad things to happen, allow it. God sees it and understands it. The question is, why can't God just destroy all evil? Why can't he just make evil impossible? Why can't he just make it so that evil cannot even exist? Well, let me give you an analogy to help you understand. Anybody in here ever tasted sour milk? Yeah? <laughs> Not good, is it? Man, I love cereal. I'm, I'm kind of a, a cereal snob. I like, the, I like the real healthy stuff, like the Captain Crunch, you know, and the Lucky Charms and the Fruit Loops. And, and I like a couple of bowls of cereal before I go to bed. That's just kind of my habit, and I enjoy eating them. And so you ever kind of in the mood for a bowl of cereal, and you get out the cereal, and you're looking forward to it. And of course, the worst is no milk. You ever done that? You pour the cereal, and you open, and there's no milk. And it's too late, and you don't want to drive to Walmart. You don't want milk that bad, so you just, you just go to bed. Well, the second worst is when the milk has gone bad, right? You pour the cereal, get the milk out, pour it, and take the big first bite. Ugh, the milk's bad. 
Now, silly question, but a fair one to ask. How do you know the milk has gone bad? Well, it tastes bad. It's got a bad smell to it. Maybe the date is two or three weeks out of date, right? That's how you know the milk's bad. But let's think beyond that a little bit. How do you know the milk is bad? Think about it like this with me, just for fun. What if from the day of your birth, your mom or dad had fed you only sour milk? That's all they gave you. So your entire life, you've had bad milk. You don't know it's bad, do you? So let me ask the question again. How do you know milk is bad? Because you've tasted it when it's good. That's how you know it's bad. Right? You, you know your car is dirty because you've seen it when it's clean. Right? Somebody said, I've never seen my car clean, so I'm really not sure what that looks like. <laughs> my wife got contacts just a few months ago. She's getting a little bit older, and she's, you know, she just realized one day I'm having headaches. She's not really getting that much older. <laughs> just erase all that. I said that. She didn't, she's not getting older. <laughs> So she, her eyes are getting a little bad. I should say it like that, right? And so she said, I think I'm going to go to the eye doctor. Maybe I need some glasses. I'm, I, she's had some headaches. So sure enough, she got contacts. And so she's been wearing contacts for several months now. And, and just about a week ago, she took her contacts out one night. She said to me, I take my contacts out and I can't see anything. I can't see anything. So here's the question. In the last, say, four months since she's been wearing her contacts, did her eyesight declines so dramatically that now, all of a sudden, four months later, she can't see anything? Or is it more likely that now she's put her contacts in, she knows what good eyesight looks like, so she's aware of how bad her eyes had become? Right? That's what happened. All of a sudden, she could see clearly, so she was aware of how bad her eyes had become. She had no idea before. Right? We, we know things are bad only because we can compare them to the good. You ever been really sick? You know, you feel terrible and it's, you know, it lasts for a few days or maybe a week and you're in bed. And all of a sudden you get well again and you've forgotten how good it felt to be well. Right? We know good because we have bad. We know bad because we have good. We understand them because we compare them together. Without bad, we couldn't recognize good. So God, just thinking through our logic, you go back to that first question, can God just destroy or why does he even allow evil? That question number two there, why does God allow evil? God can't simply destroy evil because if he just destroyed all evil, he would destroy our ability to understand good. In fact, some scholars say if you really kind of think through it logically, in order to destroy evil, God would have to do away with everything. <clears throat> Let's use the hole analogy. If I wanted to make it impossible, I said, you know, I don't like holes. They're dangerous. Uh, I don't want them in my backyard at all. If I wanted to eliminate the possibility of there ever being a hole in my backyard, what would I have to do? Take out all the dirt. That's the only way you can really do it. I just got to remove all the dirt. So if I'm really going to remove evil and remove even the chance of bad, I've got to remove everything else that goes with it. So we say, okay, I, I get that, right? I, I get that. I, I'm tracking with you a little bit. I see that God can't just do away with, but I'm, I'm still unsure, right? I'm still not convinced. I feel like some of you are maybe at this place in your, in your mind. I, I feel like God needs to give me a better answer than that. I mean, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Surely there's some way he can kind of fix the universe and move things. God, you wouldn't quite say it like this, but you're thinking, you know, God just really owes me an answer for this. You ever, you ever gone through a difficult time and a struggle in your life and you just feel like God owes you an answer? 
Right, God, you, just, you need to tell me what's going on. You need to fix this, Lord. Well, let's just fast forward to the end of the book of Job, chapter 38. If you've got your Bibles, just flip on to 38. We have it on the screen as well. Because a very interesting dialogue happens between Job and the Lord. Job, through the remainder of this book, has kind of been challenged by his friends. He's challenged in his own faith. He's questioned God. He's unsure of what's happened. And now he kind of comes to this point where he's challenged the Lord a little bit. He's kind of demanding an answer. Like, Lord, you need to give me an answer as to why this suffering has happened. You need to explain to me why I'm going through this. You need to fix this, Lord. And he's almost demanding that the Lord do this for him. Now look at Genesis, excuse me, Job 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now this is God speaking. Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. In other words, the Lord's saying to Job, listen, get up. Get up. You stand here in front of me like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions. I expect you to give me the answers. And he begins in verse 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. By the way, the Lord's speaking to us in this very moment as well through this scripture. Verse 5. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it. Skip down to verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Verse 24. What is the way to the place where light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is? On the desert in which there is no man. Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who's put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God to help and wander about for lack of food? Chapter 39, it continues. Look at verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Verse 5. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Verse 9. Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the sky? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On and on and on and on the Lord goes. 
And at some point, you kind of start feeling bad for Job, right? He's just kind of having to take all this. And then notice his response, chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, he's going to kind of summarize here, shall a fault finder, now he's talking to Job, and he's talking to you and he's talking to me. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Here's what the Lord's saying to Job and he's saying it to us. You don't know anything. I don't owe you anything. I am the creator You are the creation. I'm in control. You're not. Notice Job's response in verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my, my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no Further, Here's the third truth and maybe the hardest one for us to kind of swallow sometimes when it comes to the evil of the world and the difficulties we deal with. Truth number three, his ways are not our ways. And he doesn't know us anything. I think sometimes we have this misconception of the Lord that he's kind of like the genie in the sky and he's in his little bottle and we're going to kind of live our lives and do the things we want to do and when we need something or when we need to call on him we rub the little lamp poof he pops out and wants to answer any questions and do anything we need him to do that's not really who he is and yet we live our lives sometimes by this hope that he'll just do the things we want him to do when we never seek him we never trust him we never look to him we never love him we never live our lives based on his honor and on his glory and in his grace Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 the Lord says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways My thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's how William Lane Craig said it. An infinite person. We are limited in time, space, intelligence, and insight. But the transcendent and sovereign God sees the end from the beginning. So here's our problem. We, We look at the struggles of life. We look at the difficulties of life. We look at the things we're going through and we see them from a finite, limited understanding based on our time and our life. And all we see is our one little incident we're dealing with. When we take even a couple of steps back, we realize there's a lot more going on here. When we take 15 or 20 steps back, we realize there's a whole world involved, right? Think about the Lord. He's taking an infinite step back. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees how your little story and your situation and your tragedy fits into the bigger picture of what he's trying to accomplish on this earth. I'm reminded of what's called the butterfly effect. You guys may have seen this before. The idea was first proposed with weather patterns. Scientists would create these models of weather and they would kind of see how weather would change and how weather would would move and how it would uh, be different depending on certain inputs they would put into the formula. And they begin to realize even with tiny, tiny, tiny little changes into their formula, it would greatly change the way weather played out for many days and weeks to come. 
And so what scientists begin to call this is the butterfly effect. It's the idea that a butterfly flapping his wings in one part of the world literally can affect weather in other parts of the world for years to come. It's this strange sort of a deal. They don't understand. It's called chaos theory. They don't really understand how it happens or why it happens, but it's called the butterfly effect. Now, here's the interesting thing about the butterfly effect. If you could watch that butterfly... If you could see that butterfly and you're watching him flap his wings, you would have no idea or understanding how that one single butterfly and those few flaps of his wings would affect other weather patterns in other places and other times. We're we're finite. We don't understand it. And yet we look at our lives, our simple little single lives and the events that we live and we dare to question the Lord. And we're angry because we don't understand how his plan is playing out in our lives. One writer said it like this. The the brutal murder of an innocent man or a child dying of leukemia could produce a sort of ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later and perhaps in another land. When you think of God's providence over the whole of history, I think you can see how hopeless it is for limited observers to speculate on the probability that God could have a morally sufficient reason for permitting a certain evil. We're just not in a good position to assess such probabilities. But even in the midst of the understanding that he's God and we're not, we still hope, don't we? And we still cry out. And we still ask him to work. And I want to point your attention to the end of the book of Job as I wind this up this morning. Job 42, verses 5 and 6. Job kind of finally figures this out. He's been unsure, he's been challenging, he's been questioning, he's not quite certain what happened, why it happened. He's kind of demanding an answer. And then in Job 42, 5 and 6, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, you know, I used to think I knew you. (laughs) Now I really understand your power. And then we see this beautiful thing in the midst of this strategy, farther down in chapter 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, here's the beautiful thing about the Lord. He's got the ability to transform moments of suffering into something amazing. But here's the difficulty. He doesn't always do it in our lifetime. And he doesn't always do it the way we want him to do it. And he doesn't always fix our hurts. But at some point we come to this place in our faith where we say, you know what, I don't fully understand this. I don't fully grasp it, Lord. I don't don't want it to be like this. I wish I could change it, but Lord, I trust you enough to understand that there's something bigger at play here. There's a bigger picture than just my life. Lord, use this struggle I'm going through, whatever it is, for your honor and for your glory. And oh, by the way, as I'm walking through this incredibly difficult time, Father, let me be Christ-like in all the ways I live. Let me honor you even in the midst of tragedy with my life. See, we need an eternal perspective on the things of the world.
We need to understand that our life here is temporary. This is not our home. And we look ahead with great anticipation and excitement to all the Lord will do, hopefully here, but certainly in the hereafter. I'll finish with this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. And by the way, Paul's talking about life here. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we walk through suffering and trial and struggle and the evils of this world with an eternal perspective, understanding God's bigger plan so he can receive honor and glory. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very difficult topic to cover. It's a very difficult thing to understand. Lord, we've all been through struggles. We've all been through tragedies, Father. We've seen evil. And Lord, now even as we better understand what what evil is and kind of why it exists and and what we need to do with it, Father, we, we still are faced now very practically with walking through those difficult times. And so, Lord, I pray... In those moments of struggle, in those moments of tragedy, Father, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, first of all, to understand, Father, that you've got a bigger plan in mind. Father, I pray whatever struggles we walk through, that you would demonstrate in those moments your glory, your power. Father, I pray in those moments we would be Christ-like in the way we respond. And I pray, Father, that through redemption and reconciliation, whether on this side, Lord, of eternity or on the other that we would see your face and see your power and see your glory and you would be magnified father let us do more than just hear with our ears let us see with our eyes your power and your majesty and your glory and may you receive honor in everything we say and do we love you and we trust you in all things it's in the powerful name of jesus christ we pray amen you can stand The altar is open. If you'd like to come and pray, maybe you're walking through a struggle. Maybe you want to stand in the gap for somebody else that's walking through a struggle. This is just an opportunity for you to seek the Lord, trust the Lord, but you respond as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.